0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, hosted by Dr. Colby Taylor, a psychologist who is most definitely abnormal. Anyways, today's episode is going to be the second of a two part series. In the last episode, we talked about self harm and self injurious behaviors, and in this episode, we're going to discuss suicide. Suicide is a difficult topic to discuss. I want to lead off this episode by saying, if you have thoughts of suicide or recurrent thoughts of death or dying, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. The number for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. The number is toll free. It's accessible 24-7. And there are folks there who speak English and Spanish. All right. Suicide is a complicated topic. I could devote a dozen episodes to the topic and still not do it justice. But there are some things I want to accomplish in today's episode. I want to talk about the warning signs of suicide. Hopefully by the end of the episode, you'll be able to recognize concerning behaviors that might predict suicide. Uh, And in doing so, we'll discuss risk factors. So who might be most likely to commit suicide, as well as, and these are often ignored, protective factors, things that make suicide less likely. Anyways, today's episode came about from a listener request. I received an email a few months ago that read, I just want to let you know that I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I've been following your episodes since about October, and I find them extremely interesting. I was wondering if you could dedicate an episode specifically to suicidality and suicidal ideations. I work as a clinical research coordinator in a lab that studies depression and suicidality, and I'd love to hear your take on the different aspects of suicidal ideation and treatments. And that's the end of the email. Again, if you send me a topic request, I'll try to turn it into an episode, uh, and I'm going to make good on that promise here. So, um, this episode topic works well as back in December, so I completed a continuing education seminar on suicide. Also, in my internship year, we did a mini-rotation related to suicide and homicide risk assessment. So one of the acronyms you'll see thrown around in the world of mental health is SRA. SRA, in this context, context stands for suicidal risk assessment. Uh, I know in the world of literacy, SRA takes on an entirely different meaning. Uh, I don't know if anybody else remembers reading SRA stories and taking short quizzes on them back in like elementary school. Um, anyways, back to suicide risk assessment. One of the best articles on suicide risk assessment, in kids at least, is a 2018 article by Pettit, Boutron, and Green. I'm probably butchering those names, I'm sorry. But it's titled, Assessment and Management of Suicide Risk in Children and Adolescents. So, suicide risk is something that it invokes anxiety among many clinicians. It's one of those things that keeps us up at night. It's a really high-stakes thing, Uh, maybe one of the highest-stakes things that psychologists deal with in their practice. And in today's episode, I want to do a little bit of myth-busting, since there are so many myths and misconceptions surrounding suicide. Uh, The first myth, and this one, uh, sadly, many clinicians actually buy into it, um, is that conducting a suicide risk assessment, even bringing up the word suicide, makes your client actually more likely to attempt suicide sort of like you're seeding the idea into their head. And this is just not true. Addressing suicide seems to decrease its probability. It certainly doesn't increase the probability. Gould and colleagues published a randomized controlled trial on this back in 2005. All right, so first myth is out of the way. When we do a suicide risk assessment, we usually break risk factors, which are things that make a behavior or disorder more likely, in this case, things that make suicide more likely, into two types. We have risk factors that are distal, meaning that they're sort of far away risk factors. Um, They might be dispositional or have to do with the individual's personality, or they might involve events that occurred in the distant past. Maybe the child had a traumatic upbringing. So distal risk factors and then proximal risk factors. Proximal risk factors are things that are closer at hand. Maybe behaviors that have occurred in the last week or so that are concerning. And we're going to find out a lot of risk factors by, surprise, surprise, talking with the individual. And it's always important before beginning this conversation to let individuals know the limits of confidentiality. Normally, stuff that you talk about with a therapist remains pretty private, but there are a few exceptions, namely that you talk about seriously hurting yourself, that you talk about seriously hurting others or that you disclose abuse of a protected population, like children, the elderly, or the mentally incapable. So suicide risk assessment meets one of these limits. Therapists might be required to break confidentiality if an individual talks about suicidal thoughts. If a clinician doesn't mention these limits on the front end, it's possible the client has grounds for a lawsuit or complaint, and that they have a reasonable expectation that therapy and the things you talk about in therapy are private, unless they're told otherwise. So if you don't go over the limits of confidentiality and someone discloses thoughts of hurting themselves, you leave yourself open to this type of complaint. But then if someone tells you um, they have thoughts about harming themselves and you don't say anything to anybody else, you can also be liable. So in graduate school, we always ingrain uh, in graduate students to discuss the limits of confidentiality on the front end. Otherwise you could be left in a serious jam. Anyways. So in examining risk factors, you'll hear this phrase a lot, that the best predictor of future suicide is whether someone has engaged in past suicide attempts. And this does not seem to be a myth. This seems to be true, especially in males. If you're conducting one of these risk assessments and someone has attempted suicide in the past, that should be really concerning. It should also be concerning if someone is engaged in non-suicidal self-injury, that acronym NSSI that we talked about in the last episode. Because about 1 in 20 people who engage in non-suicidal self-injury will go on to complete suicide. So this sort of history can be filed under distal risk factors. And there are so many other distal risk factors we can look at. We know that males are over twice as likely to commit suicide as females. That among teenagers, white male adolescents are three times more likely to commit suicide than black male adolescents. However, there's evidence that suicide rates in African-American teenagers are increasing. Um, There's evidence that Roman Catholics commit suicides at lower rates than Protestants or Jews. If you're of working age, we can even look at your occupation. If you're unemployed, your likelihood of suicide is higher than if you have a job. And if you have a job in certain fields, like being a dentist, being a nurse, being a police officer, and yes, being a mental health practitioner, your risk of suicide is greater. Again, all of these are distal risk factors. There are factors that we can sort of just look at on paper. There are even actuarial models, like models that insurance companies use, that can help to predict suicide. Um, In general, middle-aged white men are the most likely demographic to commit suicide. In 2017, middle-aged white men accounted for 70% of all suicides in the United States. Moving on, when mental health practitioners are looking at proximal risk or acute risk for suicide they'll likely explore a few key areas. And these areas all sort of fall under the term of suicidal ideation. Our letter writer who requested this episode used the term suicidal ideation in her letter. So suicidal ideation means that you think about suicide. One part of suicidal ideation is having a plan to commit suicide. In general, the more specific a plan is, the more concerning it is. So a clinician might ask their client whether they have a plan. And if the client answers, they just vaguely and occasionally think about death and dying or sometimes think about um, that they would be better off dead. That's less concerning than a client who answers that they think about suicide all the time. And they have intrusive thoughts of opening their father's bedside drawer while their parents are at work, pulling out the pistol they know is loaded, and shooting themselves in the right temple. Obviously, that second example is much more alarming and concerning. So when we talk about method of suicide, one of the important things that we're looking at is the means for suicide, accessibility. In that last example, the means, the, the pistol in the father's bedside drawer was easily attainable. It was a realistic means. Uh, I was conducting a suicidal risk assessment with someone years ago, and they said that their plan involved jumping off a cliff. Well, around here, there are no cliffs within 100 miles, so the means weren't readily attainable. Speaking of means, I just finished reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Talking to Strangers. And part of this book deals with suicide and focuses on Sylvia Plath, the poet who wrote The Bell Jar, which has since become sort of iconic of teenage angst, and who tragically committed suicide in the early 1960s. So let me use Sylvia Plath to tackle another myth about suicide. And this myth is that, if someone is suicidal, it doesn't really matter whether the means are attainable, because if they're not, they'll just, find, they'll just you know, sort of inevitably find another way to commit suicide. And this is called displacement theory. So according to displacement theory, if someone wants to commit suicide by firearm, but their gun privileges are taken away, they'll just use a knife or other method instead of um, using a firearm to complete the act. So Sylvia Plath committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. She put her head in the oven. Um, It was a calculated act. If someone had conducted a suicide risk assessment right before this attempt, they would have seen that she hit for a ton of risk factors. She had attempted suicide in the past. She had talked about committing suicide. And she had talked about committing suicide in detail. Also, suicide by gas was an especially popular method among women. Women tend to commit suicide in ways that don't mutilate or harm their face and in ways that do not leave a mess. So anyways, Plath lived in England at the time, and the English were replacing their old gas system, known as town gas, with natural gas. And this old gas system, the system of town gas, was heavy in carbon monoxide, which can be lethal, whereas natural gas is not nearly as lethal. Plath's house had not yet been converted to natural gas. According to another theory, the theory of coupling Suicide is more of an impulsive act, and it's the coupling of opportunity and impulse that gives rise to suicide. Uh, In this case, town gas with its carbon monoxide and an oven were readily attainable to Plath. With coupling theory, if the town gas had been taken away, Plath likely would not have taken her own life. And there's a lot of evidence to back this up. The number of suicides dropped precipitously when natural gas replaced town gas. You take away the means and the number of suicides drops. Uh, We also see this with carbon monoxide poisoning in cars. Um, A popular method of suicide decades ago was to crank up your car for a while in an enclosed space, like in, in a garage, and you would succumb to carbon monoxide poisoning. But in 1975, the United States required all new cars to have catalytic converters, which converted exhaust from carbon monoxide to carbon dioxide. When this happened, suicides by carbon monoxide poisoning plummeted. No longer could you just go into your garage and crank up your car. The method was uncoupled from the intention. Malcolm Gladwell also cites the Golden Gate Bridge as an example of coupling. The Golden Gate Bridge is a suicide hotspot. For decades, people have been drawn to the bridge to commit suicide. So why not put up nets to catch people? Well, for decades, people took a displacement argument. That if you put up netting, people would just find another bridge to jump off. Now people are taking a coupling argument. So finally, in 2018, installation of netting of a suicide barrier was installed. And lo and behold, the number of attempts has dropped precipitously. The netting won't fully be installed until the end of 2021. uh, But just imagine how many lives could have been saved if they had installed netting 80 years ago when the Golden Gate Bridge was built. All right. So that's why we assess the means and accessibility of the means in suicide risk assessment. Not surprisingly, one of the first steps of safety planning intervention, and you'll see this abbreviated SPI, is to uncouple access to the means uh, from the person. Uh, We might also take into account whether someone has recently gone through a romantic breakup, been laid off their job, is starting to give away possessions to others, um, has had a dramatic decline in their academic grades, or is experiencing sleep disturbances, among many other things, uh, in sort of our acute risk assessment. So far, I've only really mentioned um, risk factors. Um, Assessing protective factors, things that make suicide less likely, is also really important, and it's often overlooked. Having a supportive network of friends, um, being religious, having plans for the future, having a family member that is home uh, during most times of the day, having a pet, and having a, um, strong coping skills uh, all make suicide less likely. Um, these are all protective factors. So a clinician is going to do a risk assessment. Then the next step is actually what to do with the risk assessment. What action steps need to take place to prevent suicide? Sort of an old school method, which has fallen out of favor, is to have your client sign a no suicide contract. Here, you don't let them leave your office until they sign an agreement that they won't kill themselves. Research indicates this doesn't work very well, that pinky promising not to kill yourself isn't sufficient. It also isn't sufficient to cover the practitioner from liability. Uh, It was sort of a cover your ass method and that the clinician could say, well, I had them sign an agreement that they wouldn't kill themselves, so now I can't be indemnified or legally liable or what have you. Um, It doesn't work that way. Better is to come up with a safety planning intervention, an SPI, and this is a six-stage collaborative approach that might involve the therapist, the client, and the client's caregivers. Uh, The first step of this is to identify warning signs, to identify triggers of suicidal thinking, and these can sort of be conceptualized as antecedents if we're taking a behavioral stance. If you recognize your triggers, then you can intervene to make sure things don't proceed further. Um, There's a myth that most people who commit suicide have no warning signs, that many suicides occur out of the blue. But I've seen research that indicates that a majority of suicides have warning signs, that suicides just don't happen spontaneously. The second step is to identify internal coping strategies. If you experience a trigger, what can you do to calm down? You can identify things like listening to music, playing video games, going for a walk outside an activity that is pleasurable, that's distracting, and that's de-escalating. The third step is to come up with a list of people or settings that might de-escalate the situation. Um, Talking to a friend, a parent, or a priest might be helpful. Or maybe going to the mall, to the gym, or to a youth group could be helpful. Um, The literature does caution against online places, as these aren't as effective as in-person places and might lead to bad advice or bullying. Um, The fourth step is to come up with a limited list of people the client can contact when they go into crisis mode. And this is more narrow than the list of people in the third step. The people here should be trustworthy and familiar with the client's safety plan. The fifth step is to come up with a plan to contact a professional if the client experiences suicidal crisis. The National Suicide Hotline that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode might be part of this fifth step. And the last step, the sixth step, works on creating a safe environment. Removing access to lethal means would be part of this step. Not leaving an acutely suicidal individual alone could also be part of this step. Anyways, the SBI works well for a lot of situations, but not for all instances of suicidal ideation. If suicide seems imminent, a psychologist might not allow that person to leave their office. They might be entered into acute psychiatric care until they can become stabilized. Again, this highlights the importance of suicide risk assessment as the imminence of suicide can be calculated through this assessment. All right, one final myth, or it might be too early to technically call it a myth, but I think I've fallen guilty to this one in a previous episode. And the myth is that suicides in the United States have increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is hot off the presses stuff, but numbers from the National Center for Health Statistics that were released yesterday, actually indicate that suicides decreased slightly in 2020 when compared to 2019 and 2018. Anyways, we've reached the end of this episode. Uh, just like today's episode, you can send in requests or mailbag questions, comments, and what have you to C-T-A-Y-L-O 41 at cb.edu, and I'll do my best to get back to them. Until the next episode, though, take care and stay well.